Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun-sized version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions is the indisputable, honorable Joe Russo, producer Joe himself. How are you? I'm doing well, Mick. I'm doing well. Uh, You know, we have a new way for our fans to send us questions, not just through social media, but we have an ask Mick anything at Gmail email set up now. Simpler uh, than ever. Simpler than ever. And also I found uh, our, our super postmodern fan, Gary Duffy, uh, sent us some, uh, some, some gift cards for pizza. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we know Joe lives on pizza. We know Joe's veins run with pizza. So uh, it was very much appreciated. And, you know, if anyone else wants to send us gifts to our ass, don't do that, <laughs> please. No, it was very nice. It was very thoughtful. It was very funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it will, it will definitely go to good use. But uh, but, Thank you, but other fans are sending us questions there, which is great. And we've we've called some of those and we called some from social media and uh, we've got a good batch today, Mick. Sounds great. Shall we dive in? Let's do it. All right. Another another postmortem super fan Momo asks. Oh, dear. Mick, what will you do when Joe is a famous Spielberg type director and no longer has time to produce postmortem? <laughs> I will give him my highest congratulations, ask for a percentage and give him nothing but my support. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know, I, I but, you know, I've I've uh, the fun thing about postmortem is um, we do it because we want to do it. Right? Yeah, nobody's getting rich off of postmortem. No one but, is getting rich off postmortem. But where else do you get to have conversations with Stephen King and Clive Barker and John Carpenter and and uh, just uh, Guillermo del Toro and Whoopi Goldberg and Yeah, I've gotten I've people. gotten to meet I've gotten to meet my heroes through doing this. And uh and you know, I owe I owe that opportunity to you and it's been fun and it really doesn't take a ton of my time outside of, you know, I'm still still making movies i'm in production on a movie right now and here we are recording an ama so yeah we do it because we love it as as, and literally just uh our our engineer our post producer chris price said the same thing uh so you know we we do this because we love it not because we're out to get rich uh you know so i imagine if i should be so lucky to to become a spielberg type i'll still want (laughs) to do this it's it's pretty great well, so. this is fun. I mean, we've been doing it. We're in our sixth year now. And not only is it a good time, we all learn something from every episode, but also it feels like we're doing something for the community. You know, we are bringing people in to open up about their process, about their creative lives in ways that I've never really seen or heard done on other platforms. And it, it's a very special thing for me. And it it, it feels like we're we're leaving some uh, accessible history in our wake. I am very proud of the uh, the library of podcasts we have created. Uh, all all two hundred episodes of them plus amazing. Uh, and um, you know, I I I I will continue to uh, to do this as long as Mick wants to keep doing it. So <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's that. Think that's the real question. Is uh, till we run out of good guests. That's right. That's right. And it hasn't happened yet. Nope. Uh, all right. 
Josh, a.k.a. the Lord of Delusions, writes, Mm -hmm. First, thank you for your recent foray into the quality control on The Thing. Oh, yes. On the flip side of that controversy, there's been a lot of older films recently where the restoration and remastering have taken away from the overall feel and effect, changing the color palette and taking out the original grainy quality of the film The Evil Dead is a good example of subtraction by addition. Should not the original cut just be left alone to remain true to the film sometimes? Well, they should certainly be made available. But if a director like Sam Raimi wants to go in and Evil Dead was shot on 16 millimeter film and blown up to 35 for financial reasons. If he could have afforded to shoot it in 35 millimeter or if digital filmmaking was available when the Evil Dead was made, he certainly would have availed himself of that. So if there's a way to take the best elements that make the film and present them in as perfect a manner as possible under the supervision and approval of the filmmaker himself, I'm all for that. You know, uh, if when The Stand was shot on 16 millimeter film and broadcast in standard definition, that was the norm. We edited on videotape that was standard definition. It was never cut on film. And it took until a couple of years ago for them to actually go back to the negative and reprocess it and remaster it in high definition. And it looks better than it ever did. It looks as good as I intended it to look, but was not able to achieve in that way. So I am not necessarily one for uh, just leaving what was alone, if you can actually improve it. Um, you know, the stereo surround sound and everything being digitized and and enhanced, all of that stuff is is really great. But yeah, you should have the original theatrical release available in its truest form. But let a filmmaker uh, improve it if it's possible to bring the vision that he intended from the very beginning. Yeah, and I remember you were really happy with that stand restoration. And as you should be, it looks gorgeous. And it's uh, amazing. Yeah. But I do think, I think specifically with a movie like The Evil Dead, part of the charm was kind of the 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 low grade quality to some of the footage, you know? Well, and yeah, think- that and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you look at those movies and you think, what is going to happen here? These are not polished studio productions. They feel dangerous. They're, artful, they're artfully made, but right, they feel dangerous. You don't recognize the people in them. You don't recognize the anything uh, that you would from a Hollywood movie. It's without that polish, but it has an artistry of its own. And it makes the most of the tools that were available at the time for next to no money. And we applaud that. But I don't mind having a cleaned up version if if it meets the filmmaker's approval and standards. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is our technology and our home viewing technology has gotten so crystal clear and sharp that, you know, uh, maybe sometimes it makes sense to upgrade it just for the the upgraded technology, because, you know, I, I certainly know that sometimes when I look back on my older uh, shorts that were shot on the early days of digital you know, I kind of wish they looked a little better than they do, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, Um, and I think Anchor Bay for years, if not decades, made their, their livings on different editions of, of Evil Dead and Halloween. 
Yes, <laughs> yes. must be at least 30 versions of all of those of both of those movies. Well, and uh, which which allowed them to finance uh, such classic television shows as the Masters of Horror. Series. <laughs> the Masters of Horror. So let's not fault them too much for it. Oh, not at all. <laughs> all right. RBP writes, has the last two years provided you or producer Joe with many story ideas, whether COVID related or just pandemic related? You know, I, I have kind of avoided that because uh, even though it's lasting longer than anybody anticipated, it's still something transitory. I think if you do a COVID story today, it's going to be old by the time it comes out. Yeah. Uh, its day has passed. It's marking a time in our history that is important and well worth marking. And if if you have a story that pertains to that and uh, and it matters, that's great. There have been a couple of them that I've seen that are terrific. Um, but uh, I don't really think in those terms. I, I, you know, everybody makes a movie for release today. They don't make a movie for 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I like to think in timeless terms and uh, not for, for the immediacy of it, but something that will, will have some lasting power in case, like in the case of Nightmare Cinema, it came out a year or two after we shot it because mm -hmm. of all those issues we had dealing with distribution and funding and all of that stuff. But I, I do think there is something to some of the, the themes and ideas uh, that we- Well, like Host is a genius work. Well, that sure. That, and that is, that is directly pandemic related. But I, I, yeah. I guess what I'm specifically saying is, you know, like rewatching the thing for the 40th anniversary, um, you know, that actually is a, a perfect pandemic type movie, right? Yeah, We're yeah. Contained. We don't know who's infected. Could they infect you? You know, there's, so I think there's a lot of ideas that have come out of the pandemic in terms of how society works, how we function as a society, how we treat each other as a society that I think are, are very ripe themes and ideas that I'm certainly trying to explore in some of my writing now uh, yeah. that aren't necessarily like COVID specific. You right, know, but COVID influenced, yeah. COVID influenced, yes. And I think I think that's probably I think over the next couple of years, especially you know, uh, in in genres like horror and science fiction, which tend to deal with, you know, socio political ideas at a thematic level, um, I think we'll we'll see lots of interesting twists to uh, this nightmare that we've been stuck in for two plus years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing those because anything that's approached anything that's done in an original and, and surprising way is exciting. And this is something that's happened to our society around the world mm -hmm. that can't help but influence what comes after. But anything that's pandemic specific, I'm not particularly interested in, in writing or directing along those lines, but yeah, no, I think, I think, might, I think those moments might have already passed, you know, host yeah. host was that lightning in a bottle, yeah, and there have been a couple others, uh, the names yeah. of which don't come to mind immediately, but Host is the most uh, evident of them. Yes, yes. I don't think uh, in three years we're going to be super excited about watching little tiles on Zoom. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Avid listener Jay Thomas writes, every project is designed from script to screen. Lens choices, lighting styles, lens filters all help create the final image. Mick? for one, worked through and got started during the big Amblin period. 
Uh, was there any set filters or lighting styles designated to achieve the Amblin look that you're aware of? Orson Welles was said to lean towards a 25 millimeter for Citizen Kane. Do you both have certain influences, filters, or lens choices you tend to go back to or decide to use with specific projects? I actually do. Um, there was no Amblin workbook, uh, you know, but it, it, it you couldn't help but be influenced by Steven Spielberg's work if you're writing and directing for Steven Spielberg. Um, and the push-ins from below work so much better in a widescreen than in a 185. Those, those moving camera shots pushing into the faces filled with awe uh, was very specific to his style. But for me, I like lenses that are really wide or really long. I don't like what the eye sees. I don't like a 35. This is getting very technical. No, no, that's what, that's what he's asking. I, I don't like 35 to 50 millimeter lenses for the most part. I'd rather shoot a close-up in a wide lens with the camera close to the actor or a long lens. Long lenses are only focused at, they have a very narrow focal point. And things in the foreground and things in the background are out of focus. And in building terror and tension in horror, that's a great, great tool to use. And wide lenses give you such an overwhelming sense of place and with slight distortion. I love a 10 to 14 millimeter lens for, for masters and moving masters, especially because of the feel you get. It's almost a 3D feel, but it's exaggerated. Um, and really wide lenses uh, just look beautiful to me. And I, I like seeing the world, but especially, and I like to have a wide lens near the floor, um, taking in the whole scenery, whether it's an interior or exterior and a long lens moving is great. I also like practical lighting. I, I like using actual lamps on the set or location or the stage, um, that uh, people walk to and away from rather than having giant movie lights illuminating. So, so many films and television shows are overlit. These days, that's not so much a big deal because digital filmmaking is so much more flexible and requires so much less light than 35 millimeter did. But I've always loved natural light or at least to look like natural light. You, you put a lamp on a table and have a bunch of people sitting around that table having a conversation uh, or there's a lamp overhead and the light bounces off of white papers that are on the table. So the light bounces up on the faces from below. It's a beautiful, beautiful effect and it feels natural and genuine and it doesn't have the sense of artificial that so much film and television does. So those are a few of the things that I like to use specifically and technically. Yeah, I'm I'm a sucker for a long lens because I I just love the uh, the focal drop off. Um, you know, I, I love I love being able to shift the different perspectives within the plane yeah. of focus, and uh, I love ca characters walking in and out of soft focus and mm -hmm. in the sharp focus. I don't know. There's, there's there's a lot you can do with it. I've always I've always been a a sucker for it. Uh, from from my filmmaking even to my photography, I'm always trying to get. Uh, like how, how can I get uh, something to fall out of focus? You know, like yeah. that's my, <laughs> and but, I, I um, love the use of color as well. You know, mm. the color has so much to do with emotion, you know, the color 
clothing that you wear or the the walls or you know doing uh, here's an example of the first amazing stories episode that i directed the only one i directed life on death row it's in color but there's no color to it so it looks like black and white you don't know what era it takes place in i used old telephones but um, you know, everything, it could be today, it could be 1935. You know, I wanted to make a very much a genre piece set in a prison yeah. with an unidentifiable time and place. And so all of the clothing and everything people were wearing gray and, and you know, just very muted colors. So the color palette was very, very limited. And, and that was very specific to that story. Mm hmm. I, I feel like um, I would be remiss not just to, to probe a little further into the Amblin part of the question, because I do feel like some of your earlier work, like Critters and Psycho and Sleepwalkers and even The Stand, uh, do kind of share a visual style with some of the Amblin movies that, that Norman Rockwell goes to hell quality <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the, that we've talked about in the past. Um, yeah. And then I do feel like it kind of takes a shift with The Shining in a, in a different direction towards what you've been describing here. Um, yeah. Do you think there was like a carryover influence from the Amblin era onto Mick's early work? Or do you oh, think there, that was just... You can't come of age at that time as a filmmaker, especially working within the house of Amblin and not be influenced by that. And I'm sure that's why I was hired for Critters 2, because the first Critters was very Spielbergian. I was actually working for Spielberg at the time, and they could get a writer and director come from the house of Spielberg into something that was rooted in a Spielbergian kind of uh, influence. Um, but yeah, it's the also music was a big deal. Uh, the Amblin influence also was orchestral music that at a time when, you know, in 1978, Halloween created a boon in electronic musical scores uh, nobody could afford an orchestra and here's critters too this little four million dollar movie that normally in 1988 would have had an electronic score but i insisted and we got a non-union uh orca orchestra 40-piece orchestra under nicholas pike that is a huge part of that norman rockwell goes to hell where you know you, you have that grandiose music that fills the vision even more um but yeah the the whole use of moving camera was something that you know it's cheaper and easier and quicker to have static cameras and a lot of genre movies at that time were either handheld or more static but that that graceful balletic camera movement that spielberg was so good at that john carpenter uh, really um heightened with the panaglide you know the the panavision version of steadicam yeah uh and and those were very influential the the idea of a camera movement expressing emotional content is very important to move into something or away from something or around something or to reveal things with a a a glacial or or balletic camera move uh, all those things were very much heightened when uh when Amblin and and the Spielberg films produced and directed by Stephen were made, they really kind of created a new palette for for filmmaking. Yeah, uh, one that I think you applied very well to your own work. 
Thank so, you. Uh, and evolved into your own style. So Thank there you, you go. Ash writes, I was just curious to know how your involvement in The Fly 2 came about. Was it a daunting task trying to make a sequel to one of the finest sci-fi horror movies of all time? I'm a huge fan of The Fly 2, and I think it's a really great movie in its own right that probably unfairly gets stuck in the shadow of the original, daring to progress the story, and it has some really great kick-ass gore too. Well... Um, the way I got involved basically was my agent pitched me to the studio and Mel Brooks company, Brooks films. People don't realize that Mel Brooks produced the fly movies under his company with Stuart Kornfeld directly producing. I had a meeting and I had a take. Um, and, uh, it was at a time, this was in what, 1986, I think, um, that, uh, I was in my Amblin world before I'd made my first movie. So I was just hired as a, as a writer and my knowledge and love for the Cronenberg film, as well as the Cronenberg canon, um, I think helped a lot. I had an original idea. That idea went by the wayside, however, it, during rewrites when they wanted to make it more of a teenage monster movie. But yeah, I had known David for several years. Um, I was a huge fan. Uh, he actually uh, gave support to the idea of me writing the sequel, even though he wasn't involved uh, in the movie. And very daunting, as The Fly, as, as our questioner mentioned, is one of the great horror movies, monster movies of all time. It's a very adult, very sophisticated, gooey monster movie. You know, it, um, it has... Uh, it, it gets as grotesque as any uh, drive-in monster movie, but in the realm of a wonderful love story and a deeply um, character-motivated story that, that's very human and very emotional. And I wanted to bring the integrity of that to the fly, too. I wish I could be as enthusiastic about the movie that, that happened uh, as our questioner um, because I think it falls far short of what happened with David's movie. And I think it's mainly because there was a fight. Leonard Goldberg, who had been a, a TV producer, was briefly the head of uh, 20th Century Fox when I was working on it. And Scott Rudin was the production executive, who's now you know, a hugely successful producer of high quality feature films. So they were having a battle. Uh, Leonard Goldberg wanted a teenage monster movie and uh, that ended up happening. So I wrote, I think, two drafts when they were having a battle and I saw that they were trying to make something that wasn't what I really wanted to make. Um, and at that time, conveniently, I was offered Critters 2 to direct. So it enabled me to to have done the work that I was proud of doing, created a lot of what happened in the film and leave to do something else much sillier. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you remember just out of curiosity, cause you know, and, and famously, I don't know if a lot of people or fans know this, but obviously Mel Brooks is one of the producers on the movie, which, which is a pretty cool little side note to that story. Uh, do you remember what script of yours they read that they were like, we want to meet with Mick 
off of this form? I don't know if that at that point they had even read anything of mine because I'd already worked on amazing stories. I'd already written batteries not included. So it was more just because you were coming out of the Amblin camp, you had some cachet that they were interested in trying to. Yeah, I was already an established screenwriter at that point. And so that opened the door and... In those days, pitches weren't as as detailed and deep as they are today. Sure. And, uh, you know, I had a storyline that I was really excited about. And yeah, and but, when, when you're, but when you're so so how does so how does your agent call you says they want to meet on the fly, too? And then like you had to think and you came up with the idea or did you have yeah. something in your back pocket? We were like, gosh, oh, no. if, I, if I had ever gotten the chance to pitch on the fly, too, here's what I would do. Well, I actually, I did have a story that I was pursuing in a different way that was going to be an original screenplay. And I went, wait, what if a child of Seth Brundle and Veronica Quaif with these powers under these circumstances, you know, it it was a a really great idea that's never been used uh, that uh, perhaps I still will. Um, But, you know, the, my first rewrite, settled into a teenage fly too right um and and that's what got pursued now the next writer on after me was frank darabont and then jim and ken wheat were the final writers of the shooting script right and they had been been writers uh and directors on young indiana jones as was darabont and so well uh well that actually kind of bleeds into our next question so i might as well ask it John wants to know, Mick, on movies you wrote drafts of, but weren't the final writer on, how do you reconcile your feelings about the end product? What do you do or say if you're not happy with the final result? Well, you know, that's one of the things you get paid for, um, is not just to do the work, but to be a part of a team. And Fly 2 is a perfect example of that. When I first saw the, they did a sneak preview. Uh, of the movie and I had not read the other writers drafts Mm. and as I'm watching the movie I'm sinking lower in my seat thinking my career is over (laughs) Um, and it was really depressing because it was such a high bar to meet with David Cronenberg's The Fly Mm -hmm. and it didn't even try to be that movie which is fine and Chris Wales did a great job directing and all but so much of what I thought was the best parts of what I'd written were not there. And, you know, Hocus Pocus is much closer to what I wrote. Right. Uh, just the ages were a little different. I wrote 12-year-old kids. They made it with 16-year-old kids. But otherwise, structurally and character-wise and, and the like, it was very, very similar, even though there were 11 other writers on it after me. But in that case, you know, there's still some things about it that I go, well, uh, I wish it had had these, but it's it's proven me wrong by being such a perennial success. And you learn to just say thank you. You're mm-hmm. part of a team mm-hmm. that put together this movie and how in ungrateful and and what bad karma to to be grumpy about it and say, yeah, but if they'd only done it my way. Right. You know, it's right. You learn to say thank you and appreciate the career that you're able to have you know i'm able to make my living telling stories and that's a dream i never thought would be fulfilled when i started and to be able to to be doing this yes it gets frustrating and joe i know you've had 
your issues are being rewritten extensively as well. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, just saw a cut of one of those uh, pretty recently, and uh, it's it's you know it's not a fun experience um, when when you realize just to the extent of what little is left of your your script. But uh, you know, it's um, you're right. It's it's uh, you know I I certainly have my uh, I, I I like to poke fun at hard kill here and there, uh, which is, you know, which, you know, which is one of the ones that got rewritten ad nauseum. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like the movie, it, you know, it's, it's still, it's still a Bruce Willis movie. It's still one of his, his final pictures, which is crazy. Uh, you know, it was number two on Netflix. It was, you know, it was, a, a, you know, and, and, and it helped put a lot of people money in people's pockets right before the pandemic, including my own. So, uh, I have I have no regrets about that movie whatsoever, regardless of what the critics think. Uh, yeah, I, I, and you learn, and you just continue moving forward and do and learning from your experiences and hoping that everything is better the next time. And and you know how to play that dance to dance that dance with the studios and the networks and the all of the people involved to try to get your vision through as clearly as possible. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, when you're handing your script off as a, as a writer, whether you're the first or second or third on, uh, when you're handing it off into the process, um, you don't really have much control over what happens from that point. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, um, you know, and that's, that's just the nature, I think, of a, a collaborative art form, uh, especially one that is so heavily uh, ingrained in commerce. So. And it's also how I became a producer and as a producer became tried to be the the knight in shining armor to protect the filmmakers working with me on Masters of Horror in particular. You know, I was able to say, this is what these guys want to do. Don't get in their way. Let them do it and encourage them to do it and be there as a cheerleader and let them fulfill their visions. And we were able to see undiluted visions by the greatest filmmakers in the genre at the time. And one one of the most widely beloved horror series of all time. So, you know, maybe there's something to that formula that I wish other other producers <laughs> would uh, pick up on, Mick. But uh, there are some who do. Alas, yeah. yes, okay. there are some. There are some and, and they're very in demand to work with. So, yeah. uh, all right. Last but not least, Stuart writes, when you were filming the behind the scenes back in the day, what was the process of that? How much footage did you end up getting to then cut down to a reasonable length and how much access were you given to the productions, casts, and crews? Um, it depended. Mostly it was pretty much the same. Remember, we were shooting 16 millimeter film in those days rather than digital. So you couldn't just shoot endless amounts of it. And one of the reasons I was doing making ofs was because rather than the studio hiring uh, uh, an electronic press kit company to do it for $100,000, I would do it for $10,000 and was able to do do it that way. Normally we would get two days access to uh, a production. So I would try to go over the, uh, over the schedule, the production schedule and find particularly like on the thing, we had more than two days on that, but we had some stage work in LA uh, at Universal Studios. We went out to Rob Botin's location and shot his work as he's building all the creatures and the like. And we went on location for two days to Alaska, British Columbia, where they 
shot all the exteriors um, and shot the uh, the compound. But um, normally, like on Gremlins or the Goonies, I would be there for a couple of days, interview the people who were important, but try to choose days that would be visual. Uh, when I did Videodrome, I just kind of took what they gave me, and it wasn't necessarily the greatest um the most cinematic scenes that we were there for, but we got Rick Baker in his shop and we, we got some, some good stuff, but um, it was on a very limited schedule and we weren't making entire EPKs or electronic press kits in those days. These were like eight to 10 minute making of documentaries that were given to TV stations all around the country or even the world. And so you'll see some of those pop up on Blu-rays, special editions, uh, or, or the fear on film thing was one where we just used clips, but had right. me interviewing David Cronenberg, John Landis, and John Carpenter, all of whom who had universal genre movies coming out. I love when uh, every six months, Twitter rediscovers that video. Uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, it's a good one too. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll have to post it in, in appreciation for this uh, uh, episode, but um, will indeed. Yeah. one, one, one question that I'm curious about hearing, hearing that just to drill in a little bit more, uh, you know, the producers, the studios, when they see the edit of the, uh, the behind the scenes video, have they, did they ever go like, you can't show that yet. Or like anything like, like, was there ever like take that out or change that or, uh, I went in knowing the ground rules. Right. So, uh, you know, one thing about the thing in particular was Carpenter was the most slavish about not letting anybody photograph anything in particular. There were no stills of any of the makeup effects allowed to be taken. There were no camera uh, photographers um publicity photographers allowed on set during any of the makeup effects scenes so that the only shots of those, the creature shots or makeup effects shots that you see are frame blowups from the movie. And that was a very specific choice that Carpenter made because there's a big difference in what latex looks like in real light and what it looks like when it's lit for a movie. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right, well, there you go, Mick. That's, uh, that's another round of ask Mick, any things you survived. Uh, Here we go. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Thank you. Producer Joe and uh, everybody should by all means use our new email address of ask Mick anything at gmail.com. You can still use social media if you like, but this is the most direct way to get to me and Joe directly. Yeah. Send us questions at ask Mick anything at gmail.com or pizza. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and you can still use uh, Twitter and Instagram. You can find Mick at Mick Garris PM uh, on both respectively. And you can find me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham. And still, we would love to get your, your ratings and reviews on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Yes. Smash that review button. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Mick. Thank you, Joe. Thanks everybody. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.